0: I am Daniel Lucas, and welcome to Book 101. Book 101 is all about the books that I read for the last 40 years, and today I have my special guest. She's the author of several books, no other than Miss Safa Burnell. Hello, Miss Burnell.
1: Hello, hello. How
0: are you? I'm fabulous, like you. Happy Halloween and
1: congratulations.
0: Yes, thank you so oh, much. 100
1: Best, <laughs> Best Post Book Podcasts. Oh, my goodness, that is amazing. You beat the Guardian.
0: Miss <laughs> Burnell, let's do a recap. You know, support all your books. So every time we do this, we need to recap all your books.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Safa Burnell. I am a Canadian cyberpunk and mythpunk author. And uh, we've already talked to several times in this fantastic podcast about multiple ones of my books, which I do hope you go back, listen to those interviews, absolutely support Book 101 Review. I have two book novel series, one called The Lieben Cycle, which starts with Neon Lieben. That is a work of cyberpunk. And genetic engineering sci fi, uh, which according to Amazon is on the best selling list and was in the top 300 the other day. So I'm very excited about that. Yes. Oh, we talked in length about Neon Lieben and it was a fantastic conversation. Uh, And then I also do the myth punk series, Judge of Mystics. And Judge of Mystics, it's you know, urban fiction, contemporary fantasy with folklore and mythological gods and different pantheons all converging on a world that looks a little bit like ours. And it features Caleb Maltheson, the titular judge of mystics, who was formed into the realm's only judge. He is a demigod and his mission is both as a peacemaker and executioner of the mystic truce. And we started off with Char and Ash, my beautiful book one. When it comes to the Judge of Mystic Saga, the book of knowledge is gone and someone is trying to kill the gods. And it just goes onward and onward from there. Equal parts emotion, pugilism, and humor. I really like to mix them all together. And then we got to Son of Abel, which is book two of the Judge of Mystic Saga. And we also got to talk about Book of Revels, and Ganungagab, which are books three and book four. Uh, um, A more thorough conversation about book five will be happening
0: uh, (laughs) a little bit later. (laughs) Yes, it's still coming, people. (laughs) (laughs) It's still
1: coming. And then we also got to discuss Usurper Kings, which is my first book, and where you can find me online, anywhere on social media, on Twitch. I am Usurper Kings and that is not only the title of my first book but it was the sort of all-encompassing idea behind usurper kings which was basically the feminine through time so you know uh certain usurpers taking over certain thrones and i love my poetry collection very deeply its 10th anniversary is out now Uh, Just prior to 2024, Uh, it was called A Work of Jaw-droppingly Beautiful Discovery by Kevin Hogan of the Huffington Post. And I, you know, if you read poetry, please, please go find Usurper Kings. It is, in my opinion, as the author, (laughs) fantastic.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, definitely, people. And Ms. Bernal, if we do the recap of all your books, let's do the recap about you. Make a deeper analysis about your writing and a lot more. Who are your literary influences?
1: My main literary influences are William Gibson. You know, Philip K. Dick, in a way, just not necessarily because of any, you know, (laughs) social reason, other than just when I was kind of being awakened to sci fi, it was with short stories written by Philip K. Dick and William Gibson. And so that was the very foundation of my knowledge of science fiction outside of Paralandra, outside of what I was watching on television, uh, things like Transformers and G.I. Joe and Captain Planet, you know, <laughs> so um, in a literary sense, you know, he does have that, that piece of, you know, Ubik, you know, garden and aerosol can, you know, that kind of feel that just kind of grips you a little bit and stays there, that image that stays. I think also my literary influences, just based on the way that I was raised, you know, I cannot get away from C.S. Lewis or a little bit of Tolkien, a lot of George MacDonald. George MacDonald was huge. Uh, and as the sort of granddad of what we would consider as modern fantasy and uh, modern fantasy is in fantasy storytelling, like Lord of the Rings and, and things that kind of came to the modern era, uh, then George MacDonald, I mean, you can't do you cannot be as influential as George MacDonald. Like this is the man that inspired Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Lewis Carroll, <laughs> Lewis Carroll <laughs> wrote Alice in Wonderland after having George McDonald as a physical in his life mentor. So you have to think of it in that perspective. This is somebody who influenced, you know, hundreds of authors at a time when we didn't necessarily have fantasy literature and we didn't have it for kids. And so, Definitely a big influence there, uh, Madeline Langle as well. Uh, I came from a literary tradition in university where my professor actually knew Madeline and uh, yeah. got to kind of learn directly from and just be part of the literary scene side by side as companions, as friends. Um, when I say the word companions, I mean Platonic, like friends, you know. And so I got this firm tradition of Madeleine L'Engle's approach to prose, where, you know, regardless of where anybody falls on a religious basis, I'm not talking religion here. Uh, when you look at A Wrinkle in Time, when you look at That Hideous Strength, when you look at some of these books that Madeline Langle wrote in her time quintet, what she did was introduce incredibly hard science fiction topics and traditions into children's literature. We're going into the mitochondria of a cell. We are, you know, yes, there's fanciful elements to it, too. You know, there's magic and different things like that happening. But we are learning about, you know, the engine of the cell. We're learning about cytoplasm and everything else. We're learning about the fili in the cell and these really intricate science moments And then in other ones, it's it's closer to almost quantum mechanics and time travel and, you know, multidimensional beings. And you're looking at this work of prose, which is for children. You know, it was just a fantasy book, but it had such a strong scientific basis. And, you know, the parents were research scientists that were working on certain things. And so, you know, it was, it was part of the genius of it, that it, it really did make me when I wrote Neon Lieben, and when I did my own research for my books go, I need to up my game, I need to be at that level, I need to make sure that, you know, for as much science as Madeleine L'Engle was putting in her books, I'm going to make sure that all of mine is as plausible, if not more.
0: Definitely indeed. Ms. Bernal, what is your daily writing routine like?
1: By the time I get to writing, (laughs) (laughs) uh, because I do multiple things, so I have lots of hats, as they say. Uh, By the time I get to my writing, I clear off my desk. The first thing I do is I clear off my desk. I make myself either a pot of tea or some coffee, usually a double espresso, you know, a little bit of extra water in there, but mostly just double espresso <laughs> uh, and a little teacup and saucer. You know. uh, I will make myself some form of caffeinated beverage, clear off my desk and almost shut the door. I can't all shut it because the second I shut it completely, my dog is going to start scratching at it and go, what do you mean? What do you... I got to be in here. So, you know, I give uh, passage for the hound. And then I put on my music of that day. Now, depending on the project I'm working on, I have different playlists that I'll listen to, and those are available on Spotify, you know, especially the playlist for our, my upcoming Macabre and Monstrous that is um, all on Spotify. Every single one of us that was part of that collection, the three of us, we put a whole bunch of mood music into a playlist for everybody. And I'll sit there and I'll read the last thing I wrote to get myself kind of into the mood. I will shut off discord. I will shut off everything else. I will shut off everything I can, turn the lights down lower so that it's just myself and my computer. And then I start to write. And mm. I discard the first few hundred words. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because, Why is like
1: that? Well, you know, whenever I get into a mood of writing, there is, like as Brendan Sanderson said, and you can watch this on his. Uh, there's some YouTube videos of his lectures that I find they're they're actually really good. Um, those first few hundred words are not about what they actually say. They're about getting into the mode of writing, getting into the ability to just sort of lose yourself from that inner critic that can prevent so many people from writing more words. Or you know, if you find yourself like self-editing. Every single time. And, you know, when I'm rereading the stuff that I wrote last time, the urge is, oh, man, I can fix this sentence. I can do this. I can do that. I can, I can fix this and do that. And this other thing. Uh, when it's like, no, 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 finish the draft. <laughs> <laughs> finish the no, draft. No, no, no. So that first few hundred words is the inner critic getting its yayas out before I punt it out the door and sit down and just focus um, for however long I, I can.
0: Yeah. So. So Ms. Bernal, can you share a memorable reader feedback or interaction that you had significant impact on you?
1: Mm. Uh, I think, I had someone just see me in my town the other day and do a little bit of a double take. And they were like, oh my, wait, no. And I was just like, okay, I'm just gonna keep walking. Like, is there something on my on my face? Like, you know. <laughs> I've got bright blue hair, so maybe they just don't <laughs> they're they're not somebody that likes blue hair on a person. Uh, and I, I go to walk by, and then they're like, "Excuse me, you wrote Char and Ash, didn't you?" And I was like, ah, "Yeah." <laughs> all of a sudden, it's like, uh huh. She's like, oh my gosh, blah, 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 blah. And it was just like, oh my goodness, that's the first time that's ever happened. So, that obviously is incredibly memorable. Um, I think the, the most memorable of all over the years has been a fellow author, actually, by the name of Arl Ahrens Third, And he's the author of Aegis, which is superhero sci fi. And I, I've known um, Earl for quite a long time, you know, for 11 years just on, in the internet community. And he was writing, you know, we were just talking and things like that. And somebody was asking to, well, you say you write books. Well, what does she write? Like women's fiction? Like, oh, well, yeah. What can what can this person actually write? And he went on to this um, <laughs> beautiful tangent where she goes, no, she'll dude, she'll rip your heart out, then give you chest compressions and chocolate. And it's that it's that quote. That's where it came from. Cause he had read the drafts of Neon Lieben and he's like, Oh my gosh, this is going to be incredible. And uh, so the whole like drop, kick you over the ledge when you thought you were safe, insane, diabolical kick-ass roller coaster that came from that conversation that came from Earl basically standing up and be like, no, 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 this is what Safa does. This is what she writes. She'll rip your heart out, but then she'll make it better. And it, you know, and he, he uh, formalized the whole thing for for promotion and things like that later, but it shocked me that somebody that had known me for, you know, 10 years by that point, almost 10 years, I should say, that he knew me so well and he knew my work so well. And it was the first time where I was like, oh my goodness, you know, people are actually reading when I write. People are actually engaging with this content. People are actually being involved. And it was so uplifting. And it was so special to see that I was on. A bit of the right track (laughs) you know it's it's almost like when my friend Emily who is is also uh, writing with me on Macabre and Monstrous you know so it's a collection of three authors it's myself Emily Armstrong and K.S. Bischoff and Emily went well I don't know why you say you're having such a a hard time writing your author bio you're a punk you're subversive you're rebellious no matter what sphere you're in you're somehow not attached to it you were on the fringe of that sphere regardless of whether it's this sphere or, sphere or that sphere or that sphere or that sphere, you're constantly rebelling. You're a punk. And it was just like, oh. okay, so now I can define myself. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that worked.
0: <laughs> so, Ms. Bernal, how do you handle criticism, both constructive and negative? Uh,
1: number one, was it asked for? <laughs> You know, I I have had situations where somebody, you know, out of the goodness of their heart, decided to become a armchair editor of my work when that wasn't necessary. Um, And, you know, kudos to those people. I actually had uh, one person in my life who's no longer no longer in it when I was in my early 20s writing what I thought was going to be my my debut novel, and she ripped it to shreds to the point where I put down writing any kind of content like that for a couple of years. And she will never, this person will never know how that just was utterly in in no way, shape, or form constructive. Um, you know, but she's a like, well, you know, you you need to be, you need to be told, you know, because blah, blah, blah. And it just So when I was younger, I handled it by putting a project down for a while and backing away from it, and just kind of waiting for the emotions to settle. Uh, You know, I think I learned how to handle criticism throughout a period of time. I don't think anybody can say, "Oh, I came out of the docket. I came out of the gate and immediately handled criticism perfectly." We're human, you know. Especially when you know you're starting to publish in your early twenties, you're starting to publish when you're barely out of childhood. Well, you don't necessarily have the maturity in your mind to be able to handle what people are going to say. And that's one of the reasons we were talking the other day on my Twitch stream. I was doing an author education stream on Twitch. And somebody asked, you know, what do you think about teens becoming authors, like becoming professional authors? And I was like... "Mm -hmm." can they wait? <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> It's so great. We want to foster the creativity. We want to make sure that they have the freedom and the space to tell whatever story they're going to tell. But when it comes to the commercial and, you know, marketable landscape of publishing, there are certain things that might need to wait a little bit until you're old enough to be able to take that without taking offense. Um, and so I, it was a learning process. It was definitely a learning process for me not to immediately get a little bit embittered whenever I saw something negative or, uh, to shut down and say the entire work is, Oh, that's it. I should just stop that work. It's, it's not worth it. I'm just going to stomp away and, you know, be a little bit miffed. Um, but as I got into my twenties, as I got into, um, publishing more and I started looking who, who is it? That's criticizing, you know, I had a beta reader on Neon Lieben rip it apart, absolutely just, just trash it. And he, like, he trashed me down to the third generation. Like, <laughs> it was like, <laughs> oh, and your great, great grandmother should be ashamed of you. And, uh, you know, and he just, lit, he tore me to shreds. Um, but his feedback was, this is nothing like a John Grisham novel. You're never going to make it. You need to let go of being an intellectual and just write simple stories with 500 word chapters that thrill people. That's the only way you're going to make money. And like looking at that person, well, that's not my genre. That's not my genre. And yes, I understand that my genre is smaller in comparison than the thriller genre that he was expecting me to write in. But I'm not going to change my genre, I'm not going to change those stories to fit a box that doesn't fit my foot. Like, I can't do that. So I looked at that advice. And after the initial absolute shock, I I looked at the advice and looked at who it came from and went, okay, This is not my market. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. I can let that go. This person clearly didn't understand what I was trying to do or what market I was going for. That's completely fine. And when it comes to thrillers, you're right. Neon Lieben does not fit. It is not written at a fourth or fifth grade reading level. It is not written with 500 word chapters and it doesn't have, you know, fall off a cliff cliffhangers every few chapters. That is, it is not a thriller. It is a work of, of cyberpunk. It is a work of genetic engineering science fiction. And thus I have a different space, a different sphere. So that's the first thing that I really look at. I look at who is coming from. If it's somebody within the cyberpunk genre or somebody that loves sci-fi and they start, you know, being really critical of something, then I'm going to take a huge look. I'm going to take an absolute look and be, like, okay, what are they seeing? Is it something that I and my editor missed? Because if it is, I can fix that. I can fix that. I can improve. I can move forward. Is it somebody that just doesn't like that kind of book? Is it somebody that just doesn't like one thing or another? Well, then I know now that's not my audience. Okay, that's fine. You know, I've had people tell me, oh, I don't like this kind of book. Oh, great. You know what? Actually, please put Charnash down. You're (laughs) not going to like it. Like, And they're like, what? I'm like, no, no, no. If you don't like this kind of book, Char and Ash isn't for you. If you still want to read it, I suggest you go on my Substack, read the first few chapters for free. And then you can see if my writing style is something you you would enjoy. Otherwise, here are a couple of authors that I know that I think you'd like better. Oh, oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Absolutely, because I'd rather <laughs> have you happy than have you go, I can't believe this person sold me Char and Ash when I wanted a cozy mystery. If you want a cozy mystery, Char and Ash is not cozy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little Sounds- more funky. You know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's something else. So Miss yeah. Bernal, do we have any advice for aspiring writers out there?
1: Find a community that will both uplift you encourage you and call you on bad prose. So I think that there's a balance on one hand as especially as we're you know kind of burgeoning and coming into writing as a career you know we need that encouragement we need to know that we have a safe place to to write and to talk to people about our writing and things like that um, but it benefits you only so much until, they see that there's something wrong with your manuscript and they don't do anything about it. You know, we both need to be encouraged and we need to know that we are in a safe place to receive negative feedback. Not all negative feedback is bad, not all negative feedback is going to ruin your day. You know, um, a lot of the time, what it is is I'm attempting to do something and I try something, say, like, say I tried something with the character of Caleb Malthuson in my Judge of Mystic Saga, and I meant for it to look like Caleb Malthuson has the superpowers of Thor. And, you know, he can, you know, lightning powers and he can fly and all this stuff. Like, say that was what I was going for. It's not, but you know, let's let's say that's for the thought experiment. What if a whole bunch of these people see? That, wow, it's really not working the entire time that Safa thinks that she's writing this really cool content about like superpowers and Thor and flying. It just feels like Caleb malthusen ate something funny and needs to have a bio break. Like if that's what it comes across as, and they don't tell you because they're afraid of your response or they they don't want to hurt you, they don't want to hurt your feelings and that kind of thing, they're not serving you in a place of true safety, in a place of true safety, you can go to somebody and be like, hey, you know what, you might want to take a look at these, these paragraphs here. If this is what you're going for, I'm not connecting to that as a reader, you might need to modify it. Oh, really? Well, that might hurt because I love that paragraph. It's the first one I wrote for the entire thing. I don't want to lose it. But if you want the audience to understand what you're doing, then you're going to have to modify you know, your favorite lines, sometimes take them out, put them in a folder in your computer, anywhere on the cloud, wherever it is, Uh, write them in a journal, write those favorite lines down. So they're not lost. They can be the formation of another book, another story they you haven't lost that information. It's not like it got crumpled up into a piece of you know, a paper snowball and thrown into a trash bin. You can still keep it. Um, But absolutely find that place where you can both be comforted and encouraged, and also be called to, to better yourself. You need both. You need to make sure that you're in an environment where you can do both and where you can do that for other people too, as they ask and find that confidence of friends to be able to go, Hey, you know what? Like with um, Emily and with, um, with Kes in uh, um, McComb and Monstrous, you know, there were times where both of them, you know, they would call me on something. And I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, totally. I, I totally see that now. I did not see that before, but I can see how this would come across. Yeah, just a second, Let hold on. Let me modify it and get back to you. What about now? And I would do the same thing for them as well. And we know each other enough that we're able to bounce off of each other without thinking that negative criticism means that somebody doesn't like somebody else or that it's, you know, it's for some negative reason. No, it's for a good reason. It's to build the best book you can, you know, like in martial arts, if I saw a student kicking poorly on a bag, I would go and correct their, their technique, not because I was trying to be mean or because I was trying to reduce the self-expression of that person, but because I wanted to make sure that they didn't wreck their knee, their hip or their ankle. You know, and so we need to to make sure that when we're developing safe spaces to be creative, that we're also developing spaces where with permission and with kindness, we can, you know, correct that technique.
0: Very well said, Ms. Bernal. But before we go on, I want to shout out to the people listening in Switzerland. Thank you, Switzerland. I have 14 places in Switzerland. In Zurich, I got 50%. share: Vod at 12%, Arago at 10%, Shoforsan at 3%, Tussina at 3%, Lucerne at 3%, Basel City, Bern, Basel, Landschaft, Zug, Geneva, and Solothurn, and a lot more. Thank you. Switzerland for supporting this podcast because this podcast is created to empower writers all over the world like Missafa Burnell. What is the most rewarding aspect of being an author?
1: Ooh. Mm. I think the most rewarding is when something in one of your stories actually sticks with somebody and they talk about it without knowing that you can see they're talking about it. (laughs) I I think, you know, (laughs) there have been, uh, there have been times in discord servers and in conversations. And uh, uh, actually the other day it was an interview with uh, midnight magic musing on YouTube. And somebody mentioned, uh, you know, my Twitch streams and the things that I do and uh, mentioned one of my books and what it, kind of made um, made them up their game. And I was like, (laughs) like, excuse me while I sit here weeping into a tissue and and like make myself another cup of coffee so I can hug it. Like, (laughs) excuse me while I was like, oh my gosh, I think the most fulfilling. I mean, obviously, (laughs) I mean, let let's be real. I am doing this to make money. I am doing this to support my life and to continue writing more creative works. So it is very fulfilling when book sales start increasing and you can see that people are actually beginning to like something., uh, that's important to me. <laughs> you know, it has to be because otherwise, I would need, you know, to procure other employment. But I think when you see that your story meant something to someone, that you see one of your characters actually got through, And it means something to somebody and somebody looks at your book and goes, I love it. I read it like I've read it three times and they're serious. They actually have. And you're just sitting there going, whoa, something from my brain, something from my head actually made it into somebody else's and it lives there. That is
0: so freaking cool. (laughs) Definitely. How has the publishing process been for you?
1: So I am a small press author, which means that while, you know, there's a traditional contract and things involved, uh, because of the size of the press, I am still considered indie, independent. You know, I don't have an agent. It is something that I am... Looking at when it comes to translation work. So, you know, hey, if there's any translation focused agents out there, you know, <laughs> please, <laughs> <to> <laughs> <albernell.com>. uh, <laughs> uh You know, so in order to get my books translated into other languages, I do believe that I, I require a translation um, agent to kind of go a bit of a different route. Um, but because of the small press, that took me on very early in my career. Like they took me on in, in Usurper Kings and I went, Hey, I have this idea for another book. Are you interested? And they're like, Yeah, you know, um, first come, like come here first. And so they, ever since Usurper Kings 10 years ago, they have had a um, basically a first look clause, which means that every manuscript that I write, goes to them first, and then they get to decide whether or not they're going to publish it or whether they're going to turn it down. And I go elsewhere to to find publishing. So I'm very lucky in that. I'm also very lucky in the fact that uh, Verita Literary is a very tight knit and it's it's a small press, you know, so there's not that many people that, that work at it, but they care about the literature itself, they care more about the integrity of the story than they do about marketable. You have to hit certain algorithmic things. These keywords are hits uh, are a hit right now. And those ones will be a hit in six months. So we have to make sure we modify everything so that they're popular for the now, you know, they care more about the authenticity of the story. And uh, that has been an incredible privilege to be able to have. It's not usual as much. I don't think like that's my opinion anyway, (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, but I'm glad to have the support of a more traditional environment where, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not paying for editing. I'm not paying for anything in the, uh, in the publishing process. You know, I get to have that experience and, you know, they send me my author copies and everything like that. And I get to have that experience while working with a team that are very intimate and very authentic. And, um, it's come with some risks. You know, obviously the promotion budget is a lot smaller because it's a small press. So my books sell by word of mouth, mostly instead of large campaigns, because the large campaign finances are just not there. Um, But hopefully, hopefully they will be, you know, and I'm willing to stick it out.
0: Yes, definitely. So Bernal, how do you feel about the current state of the publishing industry Mm. nowadays?
1: I think we're going to start seeing even more of a shakeup. I remember years ago when discussing the rise of electronic books, the rise of e-books, the the rise of Kindles and Kobos and e-readers and all that kind of thing. Everyone thought that e-readers were going to take over and then were shocked 10 years down the road when they haven't. They reached about a high of almost 40% in some markets and then came crashing down to 30 again. And they're kind of hovering between 30 and 40% of the market every year. Um, and I think that was a shock to a lot of people. Now, I know a lot of, uh, you know, certain people in the indie market who are like, no, 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 I get way more digital sales than I get print sales that can't be, you know, that can't be accurate in comparison. Well, what kind of book are you writing? I am guessing that it's either on Kindle Unlimited or it's in within some other program where people can, you know, one monthly fee and then they can kind of Netflix the book, you know, they can read it, um, kind of read and return kind of thing. Um, but I think the one thing that's been happening in the last six months in the North American market is the fall of YA, the amount of YA books that are being purchased are going down. They're going down at, at a fairly expeditious rate. Uh, Cause I think that that cohort of people that were so interested in YA, I think they've grown up a little bit and, you know, for them you know, one of the things that makes YA so special, in my opinion, is that focus on coming of age, that focus on that first step into the greater adult world, that first step into a larger world outside of the cocoon of childish protection, you know, outside of the cocoon of wherever they have been, you know, even if life is hard, like in the Hunger Games, that kind of thing. And then you're taking those first four ways into making decisions for yourself. Well, that is an excellent narrative when somebody's a teenager, but once they've already taken those steps in their own life, it's like they want to graduate with the fiction. They want they want necessarily a slightly different story. Maybe it's not about that ingenue who's taking their first wide-eyed steps into a larger world. Maybe it's about that ingenue several years later who may be a little bit tired and is dealing with the consequences of all the things that happened, um, but is in the middle of their story instead of at the beginning of it and so i think new adults and then just you know kind of trade aka general adult fiction is going to rise up a little bit i think that we are finished with superheroes for a while i think superhero fatigue in the film industry has been colossal uh we've seen that with how many blockbusters have been put out there barely making ends meet um also there's you know the size of the films and just the cost of them and then you know how many people do you need to actually make that sustainable that comes into it too but I think because we've had so many superhero movies and things like that that superhero sci-fi and that kind of thing is going to be going down a little bit in our books and instead things like magic realism and myth punk are going to rise that is my opinion that is my hope as somebody who's writing myth punk books, you know, it is it is my hope that I'm correct yes. here. I don't know, I don't have any insider knowledge, but the sense I get is that we're going to go into some form of magic realism, some form of almost more myth punk kind of place. We've done the vampire thing, people are still slightly tired of that kind of thing. You know, we've done werewolves, you know, people are a little bit more tired. I think what we're gonna see is more Slavic inspired, more. Um, Hindi inspired, you know, some more kind of, you know, Asia inspired novels and folklore, you know, we are getting a lot of novels with, with some Chinese mythology, like Taoist mythology and different things in there that are absolutely freaking beautiful. You know, I think um, people are going to raise up the voices of those who are writing things from say a folklore, maybe more Shinto perspective that we get with certain anime and certain manga. And then uh, we're going to start seeing some more, um, Afrocentric stories and you know I like I cannot wait for the day that Disney realizes they need to tell the Anansi tales
0: Definitely.
1: You know, Anansi <laughs> from West Africa, like, are you kidding me? Those stories are amazing. There are so many amazing authors out there that will can work with that content because, you know, that is, you know, where they were born and raised. And like, I remember going back and forth to West Africa because, you know, I did uh, charity work for quite a long time, you know, and I also had some business interests in, in Ghana. And, you know, listening to my adopted sisters talking about all these tales and things and being like, what? And then them bringing out like Anansi tales and these like dog-eared books with these stories that just they're so fun and they're so vibrant and alive. And like, I think that's where storytelling is going to go. And I'm excited. I'm like, let's go. Where where are they? <laughs> where are these stories? <laughs> you know, let's see them. I'm so excited by that. I think folklore is going to be the next big thing. And I hope folklore is going to be the next big thing because it is something that I know from an academic level quite well. Um, and, you know, it's <laughs> something that I've banked half of my career on. So I ooh, excuse me <laughs> while I, you know, bite my nails, hoping that this is, this is uh, the reality that we're in. Miss Ms. Bernal, if you go
0: back and give advice to yourself when you were first starting out as a writer, what would it be?
1: I think the first thing I would do is tell younger me not to try and do everything on my own. I went out into publishing with a vengeance thinking that I could do it myself. that well you know sure I could try and get um a publisher and I could try and do this and try and do that and and the whole thing um well I can do it myself I can do it myself I'll I'll do it myself Uh, no (laughs) sorry you don't know enough to know that you're missing you know three-fourths of the equation and that's not saying anything against you know the youths of today but There's so much complexity around us that when we're young, like I was starting to publish short stories as a teenager. So I was little, I was little, you know, Um, and I wish I had waited. I wish I had grown up a little bit more. I wish that I had continued writing every day voraciously. And then later on, after I went through school, after I went through a few years of figuring out what the business of publishing actually is, and what it's like, then I would have made things better. Because what ended up happening was, you know, the eventual rewriting of an entire novella, you know, some of Abel, some people are like, well, I thought I saw that on your list before, like, back in 2017 back in 2014 like yeah back in 2014 son of abel was a character um a character sketch done for a magazine you know and then it kind of evolved in this sort of stumbling way which looking back i could have prevented the stumbles and instead taken that character study and just focused on it and made something of it to the point where i have the son of abel novel today And I am so proud of the novel that is today, but I needed to grow up a little first. And so write, write every day, write voraciously, write with your friends, write, you know, find some some people you can jive with and write with, not for publication, not just for practice, for enjoyment, find the things you enjoy, find the things you're good at, find those things that you just really are interested in and write enjoy it enjoy every second of that process don't think okay this will be great for publishing leave publishing on the side of the road for a while wait wait until you're in your 20s wait until you've got that chance to grow up a little bit and then to be able to take on the publishing industry you know with this fantastic vengeance you know um I'm not saying, like, you know, (laughs) grab a pitchfork, but, you know, separate those early writings from I have to make something marketable. And instead, hone your craft until you've got these bedrock of stories and characters and settings and different things that you just really love. And then think of who you're going to write for when you approach writing for publication when you approach writing as a professional as somebody who wants to become a professional as somebody who wants to be commercially viable because not everything that you do in the commercially viable sphere is going to immediately feel authentic some of it's going to make you feel like oh but i really like this idea yeah but it's too much you know, but you need to dial that back. You need to dial this back or maybe you need to push a little harder on this and that, that, or in the other thing. Oh no, but I love this character. This character means something to me. This character is a, a reflection of this family member. And I just really need that character to have a good life. Okay. Well then maybe that's the character for your personal writings. Maybe that's not the character to bring in to something where people get to poke at it with sticks because they will. And That is, uh, I think that is my advice.
0: To your younger self. So Ms. Bernal, where can our listeners find more about you and your work?
1: You can go to com. That is ww.saffaburnell. That's S-A-P-H-A-B-U-R-N-E-L-L dot com. That is my website. It has more information, more links. You can find me on Goodreads, the story graph. You can find me on Substack at usurperkings.substack.com. I do weekly articles and weekly posts. And I also serialize my back catalog on Substack. So All of that is available there. You can find me on X. You can find me on Instagram and threads and Twitch at Usurper Kings. I am live every Thursday, Friday on Twitch, and it's a lot of fun. We have a lot of good discussions about the creative arts. You can also find me on Discord at My Beautiful Machines Discord server. Um, you can also find all of my books in bookstores anywhere that Ingram distributes to you can find my work you can ask them to bring it in you can also find my work at local libraries and if my work is not at your local library please tell them to bring the books in local libraries purchase books based on what they know their people are going to enjoy so please absolutely tell your local libraries about these indie authors about my work you know get them to bring those books in especially if you're in Canada because the more books and the more times a book is taken out of a Canadian public library, the more a Canadian author can actually earn through public lending rights through PLR. And so it is incredibly important in Canada for authors to be in the libraries. And so uh, please, please, uh, if if you're going, yeah, well, you know, you've got like, six books right now i just don't know how much like (laughs) i if i i might only be able to get one well you know what please go to your local public library and they uh most likely talk to their acquisitions people they'll they'll bring it in um but yeah
0: definitely yes let's support miss safa bernal because if you support her more more books to come so next week miss bernal let's talk about your anthologies yes <laughs> we focus your books and who are you today and people you are uh, listen notes for my latest score of uh, twenty six and belong to ten percent popular show globally and Fitchman thank you so much for being number two best book podcast on the planet thank you so much so Miss Bernal thank you for your time
1: and thank you for having me it was a joy once again and uh thank you for giving all of us this platform to be able to talk about our books and to have really Amazing conversations. It cannot cannot listen enough. Yes, gone people. See you soon.